0: we just start every episode with like grinning at each other i know it's kind of like jumping into a jump rope (laughs) i'm not quite ready i'm not quite ready wait wait i'm not quite ready okay i'm gonna jump in i better like get a jump in (laughs) and then you get hit in the head with the jump rope (laughs) (laughs)
1: And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones.
0: Hello, and welcome to Freudian Sips. We're starting. Hello,
1: welcome to Freudian Sips. (laughs) I'm Anna and I'm Bonnie oh you're so much more professional than I am (laughs) okay I've got to start with happy mother's day happy mother's day to my mommy (laughs) to the best mom ever
0: thanks baby so if people listen to the podcast and it's like nowhere near mother's day then what happens they're like mother's (laughs) day it's aging
1: ourselves it's fine (laughs) we're dating ourselves Uh.
0: Yeah, but when we're recording this particular podcast. It is
1: the beginning of Mother's Day weekend.
0: Mm-hmm. And and my babies. <laughs> Got me lots of cool stuff that Anna set up in a pretty little thing. Little flowers. This is when we need pictures. I will post in our, little our Instagram. Little pictures and a candle <laughs> and yummy drinks.
1: Yes, can I tell you what our drink is this week? Ah. Please do. It is a themed drink, but not themed for our subject. It is themed for mommies. Oh. specifically my mommy. It is <laughs> specifically your mommy. My mommy. This
0: should be scary.
1: Jalapeno ginger mimosas, <laughs> because it's classy and it's sweet and it's a little spicy, just like my mommy. <laughs> and also, there's ginger in it, and you're a ginger.
0: <laughs> wow, you covered all the bases. Oh, that's so sweet. And there's a little jalapeno floating there in is. It.
1: She's very wary of taking a drink because it's, it's just
0: like... It got in my mouth a minute ago. It scared me. I like jalapenos, like on nachos, but I've never had one in a mimosa-like a drink. Broadening
1: your horizons.
0: Mm-hmm. You're wild. Thank you. It is an honor and a privilege, Anna Marie, to be your mother. It's very sweet.
1: It's an honor to be your daughter. <laughs> I had two awesome kids. And if you're listening to this and you don't have a great relationship with your mom, you can borrow mine.
0: You can borrow <laughs> yes. my mommy. Yes, My mommy I,
1: is your mommy now.
0: I can do that. I, I've been rented out before. <laughs>
1: That's true. <laughs> I often, at college, I would be like, do you need a mom hug? I have a mom. I have a mom <laughs> who's just ready and raring rarity of hugs. It is hard. We kind of are
0: jumping the track onto kind of a negative, serious note that a lot of people don't have very good relationships with their mothers. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of a painful time then to have Mother's Day. But I guess as a counselor, I would encourage people who don't have a very good relationship to look at it and first of all, decide if it's fixable. Because sometimes it's not, unfortunately. Right, And, And And that's okay if it's not healthy for you to be in a relationship with your mother. It is okay. right. To go on and not have that. But I think it's also important that you look for mother-type figures in your life if you're missing your own mother. Right. Look for people who can kind of fill that void. Mm-hmm. So in case you are listening to this anytime near Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day to all of our mommies. And thank you, babies, for my Mother's Day stuff.
1: <laughs> and if you are a baby who has a mommy, call your mommy.
0: Yes. Call your mama.
1: <laughs> so so best mom. Yes. What are we talking about? Or Who? are we talking about today
0: today we're talking about al alfred adler
1: (laughs) that's how i have in my notes too al well
0: we're but that's kind of what we do right we 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 want to be friendly with them right shorten
1: them as much as possible
0: and we i think we say this almost every time like oh there's so much there's so much there's always a lot
1: well i think there's always a lot more when we go through people just Mm because we have to talk about who they were because i think that gives important context to I don't think it would be as impactful as if mom just made a face because I think she got a drink of.
0: I got a lot of juice. jalapeno juice in that one. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You. I think I put, I think I put too much jalapeno
1: juice in it. <laughs> you got it because I tasted it. I was like, "This isn't spicy enough." I put more in.
0: It's pretty spicy <laughs> it's now. Spicy. I'm sorry, I interrupted your thought with a sour face.
1: Um. Oh, that I think it's important to give context where if we were to talk about these theorists and just talk about their theories i don't think it would be as impactful because i think that knowing who they were and where they came from informs how they created their theories exactly especially adler i mean i think that the way he grew up was really influential to how he eventually started to see the world so Mm -hmm. and I i don't think we can ever really be divorced from how we grew up i think that really shapes our worldview so i think it's important to give that context on these people that we're talking about and that's why we do it that's why we do it will you begin and tell us a little bit about al I sure will. I will begin with a disclaimer that almost every concrete fact I found about Alfred Adler was different in different sources. (laughs) So I have no idea if any of this is true. Because the very first sentence in my notes is Alfred Adler was born on February 7th or 17th of 1870. Somewhere in a 10 day span. Somewhere in those 10 days was he born. I don't Because I read in a book, like I have my my history of psychology book that he was born on the 17th. And then I found like three online sources that said 7th. What does your your book say, Mama's book? I don't think it has an exact date. Okay. It just has a year. Probably because they don't know either. No
0: one knows. Yeah, they looked it up online (laughs) and they are like, like, oh, I don't know. Oh, February 7th in my book.
1: Okay, maybe it was just a misprint in my book. That's what you get for reading books, people.
0: (laughs) Always trust the internet. Although this is a book I'm looking at. Right, that's true.
1: But he was born in a Vienna suburb. He was the second... The second or third of seven kids. (laughs) Who knows? Every source had something different. He was either the second or third. But he kind of remembered his life as being miserable, he often said. For example, when he was only three years old, his little brother died in bed next to him. So, yeah, starting off with a bang... Poor kid. You think he remembered that at three? Would you remember? I, I mean, know. that's
0: pretty traumatic. Pretty, it's yeah, probably, maybe it was. If nothing else, into his he memory. probably heard the story over and over again right. as he got older. So,
1: remember that time your brother died in bed next oh to you? My like, God, thanks, that's mom. Cool. Great. Happy Mother's Day. Yeah. Oof. Thanks for reminding me. And it didn't get a
0: lot better for him, did no, it? No,
1: he was a really sickly kid. He considered himself small and ugly. He had rickets that kept him from walking until he was like four. And at five, so like he got rickets, and then he was four, and he's like, "Great, I don't have rickets anymore." And then at five, he got really bad pneumonia, so bad that a doctor told his father, "Your boy is lost." Oh, I know. I I assume in front of probably, Al. yeah. That's when Al decided to be a physician out of spite, I guess. <laughs> like, I'll show those. I'm doctors. gonna get over this pneumonia, and then I'm gonna be a better <laughs> doctor than this guy. I'll have better bedside manner. <laughs> Low than any bar to clear. Doctor. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's sad because like we were talking about this before we started recording but like he was a really good singer like he was really talented so much that people were encouraging him to be an opera singer Mm -hmm. and then he eventually decided to be a doctor so he didn't do that but he clearly had a lot of talents and a lot of he was very resilient if he was able to overcome all these really big health challenges and and so it's really sad to me that he considered himself like small and ugly and and that his childhood was miserable i mean that's i don't know that's just really sad and it it really does kind of show up in some of his later work what he talks about with his theories it's like yeah i can see where you get that i think that
0: ties in perfectly to what you said before about one of the reasons we talk about their lives Mm -hmm. is because it often shows where they got some of their theory from and boy that's right right on with some of his theory so Right. And we talked about how every single picture you see of him, he looks sad. He looks
1: so sad. Like, he never smiles. He's always got kind of a pout. But he's a handsome guy in the pictures. I I mean, he's he's not, like, ugly. No. I don't know. It's really... I don't know. It's just sad. (laughs) The downside of doing this podcast and doing all this research is I look at all these people's lives and I'm like, God, that's sad. Mm -hmm. That's a bummer. I'm so sorry. Even Pavlov, who I think had an okay life, did crappy (laughs) things to dogs, so that was sad. Just everyone. Sad stuff everywhere.
0: But it does seem that a lot of people in the psychology field have had trauma or really hard things happen to them.
1: I noticed that when I was in school. Yeah. Often the people that I was in school with, once I got to know them, and I was like, dang. Yeah. <laughs> is that why you're in psychology? Is that, is that why you're in this major?
0: That's a good point. Yeah. That is a really good point.
1: So, So he decided to be a doctor. He studied at the University of Vienna when he got older. He specialized in ophthalmology, though. So he was eye doctrine. Hmm. I know. Which is a common theme for the theorists that we talked about that have started in physical medicine mm-hmm. and have kind of moved to psychology and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he, he did go to general practice. So he studied ophthalmology, but then he went into general practice when he actually got out of school. This is one of the most interesting things that I found about him. He worked near an amusement park in a circus. Did you see this? No so his interaction and treatment of the performers led to some of his later theories because of like the difference of how their organs worked and stuff oh my gosh so yeah sorry it's really it interesting yeah he had i a- think circuses are going out of vogue circuses are bad right right audience sisters <laughs> hey tweet me if circuses are bad <laughs> I think they're bad now because of the whole animal thing. Yeah, and I don't the, think they're very good to their workers, the and animals people. And stuff. That are, yeah, and there's the just been a history show. of like yeah, exactly, like it's treating scary. people with physical yeah. physical ailments is, is uh, freaks. Not yeah, great. That's, that's Not great. Not a good precedent to set. Mm-mm.
0: I mean, I think that's kind of gone by the wayside for a I while. So
1: I, I, I sure hope so. It, yeah. If I ever go to a circus, which I won't, <laughs> but if I ever do, and there's a sideshow, <laughs> I will freak out. <laughs> I'm going to freak out.
0: Somebody can let us know if they've been to a circus lately.
1: If you yourself are enacted a sideshow, <laughs> tweet us, please. <laughs> Come on our show and talk. Exactly. <laughs> so, in, uh, <laughs> again, either in 1902
0: or 1907. Wow, that's who A knows? different.
1: He got an invitation from Freud to join an informal discussion group, and different sources, again, had different details. One place called it the Wednesday Night Meetings, and one place called it the Wednesday Society. I much prefer the Wednesday Society. What a great name. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of the, uh, did you, you remember that show on Nickelodeon, the Are You Afraid of the Dark show? Yeah. With the Midnight Society? Oh, yeah. And they would all gather around At and say, room. this is this is the tales of the Midnight Society. And then they would throw the shit in fire, and it would go poof, and then they would tell a scary story. I imagine that's what these guys were doing. <laughs> I think that's exactly what they were doing. <laughs> they're, they're, Welcome to a meeting of the Wednesday Society. Boof. Freud
0: would do that. Freud would totally throw do that. a little oh. cocaine in the fire. Or, <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that what happens when you throw a cocaine in a fire? It goes boof. I I've never done that, but I guess you know we'll have to try it. Again, we might have to ask someone who's does this for like science, that,
1: but... guys. Throw some cocaine in <laughs> <and> some fire. <laughs> or maybe they did what we do right now and they just like drank and talked shit about people. <laughs> Probably. Other psychologists, like, can you believe what he believes? That was Pavlov. I don't oh, know why was he's Pavlov there. This party? I, <laughs> I don't, don't think, think he, he was invited. No, I don't think they would have invited. I tried, him. I was gonna do a German accent, but I chickened out at the last <laughs> so to turn it into I a, turn it. Into a, but Russian. I'm excited because
0: you, you could do a Russian one coming up here when you talk about his wife.
1: I so my uh my husband studied linguistics in school and last night i was i was researching i was like can you teach me how to do a german accent in five minutes he goes no <laughs> <laughs> i think it'll take longer yeah. i said no i only have five minutes
0: you have to watch like some of those old shows like hogan's heroes and where they have those real stilted german accents
1: my problem is i always want to start with like a z like a frog line mm-hmm. but that sounds russian Don't fret about it. Dumb, fretting. So, the Wednesday Society eventually became the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. VPS. Vips.
0: Sounds very professional. Vips.
1: A lot of people, I think, look at Adler as a disciple or a pupil of Freud's. I think that's kind of how it's gotten turned in the media. Mom oh, keeps making really bad faces, making me very subconscious about my <laughs> mixing skills. No, that's not that. No, it's, it's excitement. It's excitement? <laughs> no, you're a liar. It's, it is, I just drank a jalapeno face. It's
0: appreciation for the finer things. <laughs> that's what that
1: look is. Fine. <laughs> I guess I'll be drinking the rest of the carafe I made. So, again, people think of him as a pupil, but he was a colleague, and, and he was so insistent about this that he, like took the invitation he got to a reporter later in life, like the invitation from Freud that was like, hey, come be my peer in this meeting. And he was like, look, look, I'm not a pupil. I was a colleague. And even in some of Freud's writing, he referred to Adler as my colleague, Dr. Adler. Mm-hmm. So it, there, there is a precedent for he was a colleague and not a pupil or a student or whatever you want to call him. So they were on the same level. But he actually became president of uh, the VPS until he departed from the group a year after he became president in 1911 due to dissension from Freud's ideas, and he and Freud just kind of didn't like each other very much. Um, They kind of got to have a bitter, I don't want to call it a rivalry, maybe. I think it would probably be a little
0: bit that. Well, I mean, some of their ideas were, were very different, and so... I think Freud probably didn't like that very much. And also that Adler was starting to get attention for those theories was probably very annoying to Freud. Cuz when we talked about Freud, we talked about how much fame and recognition meant to him.
1: Right. And Ooh, so, when, that's I didn't even think about that, when, but at that but at that point Freud had his own recognition. I mean, he was starting all these things mm-hmm. and he had disciples and he had students, so it, like, maybe he thought that Adler was getting it too easily or something but they eventually developed this kind of bitter thing between them. Adler had a brother named Sigmund, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I there was probably some stuff there. <laughs> some uh, transference? Maybe. A little transference going on. I don't Did I bring my book up here?
0: I didn't see it. Do you want to pause and get it? I'm going to go
1: get it. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna have to put elevator music there because I had to run downstairs to get my book. I should have sung or something. <laughs> Sang, sung. Yeah did you did you entertain the, uh, the listeners? I did not. <laughs> Sorry, <I guess, laughs> they're probably just thrilled that I did <laughs> not entertain the listeners. But <laughs> I was out of breath. I was gonna.
0: I could have just sat here and like talked to myself about stuff.
1: <laughs> just waxed poetic for a while,
0: <laughs> but I didn't. It's been a long. Week. I didn't
1: even need my book right now. I need it for well later. <laughs> I just wanted to be prepared. So uh, yeah, they they did not like each other, and Freud was really mean about Adler in some of his writings. Uh, I think, like you said, he was bitter that Adler had this association with psychoanalysis, even though Adler did not agree with much of it. I mean, from the get go, it wasn't like it wasn't like Jung where. He kind of started in psychoanalysis and eventually, kind of took a different path and said, "No, I don't really agree with these things." Like, kind of from the get go, Adler was like, "No, I don't think that's how it works." Right. But he was he was part of the society of it's called the Psychoanalysis Society, but I think it was probably just one of the first societies of psychology people right so maybe that's why he stayed in it but yeah he was never really big on the psychoanalysis itself so he started his own school he founded the society for individual psychology which spells out sip
0: oh my gosh
1: (laughs) our boy our boy he did keep a lifelong admiration for freud's ideas though so even though he didn't agree with it he had this kind of professional like he does it. Yeah, yeah. Does you have yeah. your thing, and I have my thing, and yeah. that's fine. So he was a little bit more mature about it than, than our
0: pal Siggy was. Significant, I think, is just the idea, even as they went through their careers, that Freud kind of was involved with the upper class, people with money society. That's where he wanted to be. And that's Listen to our was. first episode to hear yeah. the dark underside of that exactly. part of the story. And Adler was drawn toward helping the lower class people and helping yeah. women and helping children and that was a big thing for him to
1: yeah maybe that's why I mean and I think that's kind of the point is just they dissented about a whole bunch of ideas right. they just did not agree about almost anything and mm-hmm. I think it eventually drove a wedge in their colleagueship or whatever it was i agree so uh when he founded the society for individual psychology it was in 1912 and he had a really prolific career after that so he worked in a hospital for hospital service during world war one in 1919 he organized a child guidance clinic in vienna and that was where he worked with teachers and parents to provide mental health services in schools and this was groundbreaking i mean heck even now it's kind of hard to come by So I I think he was really ahead of his time in really pushing for that because he really did value the mental health of children, Mm -hmm. I believe, because he had such bad mental health when he was a child. Mm -hmm. So he probably really held that close to his heart. And he really pushed for teachers and students to work together and teachers and parents to be working with their children to be making this all possible. And he was probably the first family therapy or community psychiatry ever. I mean, especially on record. He was the first one to really make it kind of a systems approach Mm -hmm. instead of just saying, which is weird. I think you mentioned this. We just
0: talked about that before. Why do you call it
1: individual psychology? It was way more community-based than any other type of psychology
0: on the market at the time. That's one of the things that I'm going to come back to a couple of times throughout this podcast is that when you said the thing about you saw in this source, a certain bit of information, another source, of, I even have that issue just with the whole Adlerian theory stuff, that you read this part and it says, like this is a perfect example, that it's called individual, and yet he was very into the idea of systems yeah. and, and what how our families affect us and how our communities affect us and how we long for that connectedness to other people, and so it's kind of like, isn't that a <laughs> dichotomy? And there's a couple of places where I feel that way, so...
1: Did he just not know what words meant?
0: I don't, <laughs> he was just keeping himself wide open, so <laughs> he's like, he was like, maybe I'll go into that. I want to be okay. Everything's he just wanted fine. it to be spell sip. I think that was it. I think that's it. He knew
1: because the Society for Community Psychology is SCP, and that's just scary stories on the internet. So yeah,
0: <laughs> that's true. That's,
1: that's cool a- sip. Yeah, listen. Not nothing is school sips.
0: Nope. Am I right? Am I and our sipsters? Am I
1: right? <laughs> Am I right, sipsters? <laughs> so in the uh, in 1932, he eventually went to New York to spend time in the United States, mostly because of the Nazis. Thanks, Nazis. Mm-hmm. He again kept his career very prolific. He went on a lot of lecture tours. He actually died while on a lecture tour in Aberdeen, Scotland. On May 28th, 1937, that was the only time a date was the same. Oh, good. In all the sources I looked. But about his death, our buddy Freud had this to say. I don't understand your sympathy for Adler. For a Jew boy out of a Viennese suburb, a death in Aberdeen is an unheard of career in itself and a proof of how far he had got on. The world really rewarded him richly for his service in having contradicted psychoanalysis.
0: Freud dude I know
1: <laughs> are you a little bitter Freud in uh, in previous episodes we have been very apologetic about Freud we have done some heavy Freud apology and I'm I don't know I'm feeling a little bit protective of Alfie right now yeah. he had a very hard life and I don't think he needed people to be saying that about his death I think that was very mean and I want Freud to apologize I'll wait Oh wait, <laughs> maybe that's what's happening right now. In the they're, in psych- they're in
0: psychology heaven. It's just one long therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> some of us are going to need that after this life. No,
1: that was really mean. Troy
0: needed some anger management. Really
1: mean. Yeah, really? he wasn't
0: a real nice guy, Anna. We've established that. We we tried the to pull out just the good died. stuff. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was was his wife still alive? At that time, probably I, I didn't read much about his well. I wife. wonder if she heard about that.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna punch Freud in the face. <laughs> I'm she Freud said, you. "I'm gonna fight <laughs> Sigmund Freud." Her and almost everyone on Tumblr. <laughs> I will say that she People was Russian, though. Do not like Freud. his wife was from. Oh, Russian. really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Did you read a lot about his wife? Tell just, me about her.
0: Just that she was Russian. Oh, that's and that she thing. was a socialist because she was Russian. Sure, and that's kind of part of one of the reasons that Adler kind of got pulled into that whole mentality of socialism and really took took that to heart the idea of of living in a community and
1: I was gonna say he was community based anyway mm-hmm. and I think socialism just kind of mm-hmm. jived with that I don't know what came first the chicken or the egg <laughs> Yes, the socialism <laughs> or the community yes exactly I don't know But speaking of socialism, socialism, being in -hmm. the social, Mm -hmm. can you tell us? We're gonna, okay, so that was his life, closing that chapter. Chapter one, his life. Chapter one, Alfie's life, has concluded. We're moving on to chapter two, theories. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Anna. You need to drink more because these mimosas are getting me. I had to put almost the entire bottle of Prosecco in
0: there. I think that you finishing off the bottle of... You helped me. The sparkling, whatever that was. You helped me. Okay, so let's talk about the idea that, and this is kind of tied to that, that Adler felt very strongly about socialism in a way, in Mm -hmm. that we are all innately... We have this desire to be part of society, to be to be linked to other people, which I think is pretty cool at its core. I really like that; it's a cool thing. So, one of the terms that he used is social interest, and that is something that we're born with, basically. So, this kind of almost ties back to Freud's unconscious thing Mm -hmm. because it's like it's it's our unconsciousness that we have this desire to be linked to other people.
1: Well, and it ties into young. Who was also, he was a neo Freudian. Mm-hmm. And Jung's thing was the collective unconscious of desires and kind of motivations that we inherit from our ancestors, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that kind of ties into that. Exactly. So part of his theory is this idea of social interest.
0: And the biggest part of that is that we all, everyone has a need to experience increased belongingness is the word they use over and over again with other people. So we're pulled to be connected. There are two other parts to that (laughs) fundamental. Belongingness is a very good word. You like that word?
1: Belongingness. Belongingness.
0: Um, we also have a fundamental urge as human beings, according to Adler, to realize a state of perfectibility. Is that another word you wanna?
1: Perfect. Okay. So, you wanna riff on? Wait a minute. Give me your last verse.
0: Oh. Okay. What do you wanna say about perfectibility?
1: I, I maybe shouldn't say it before you keep talking because you may explain it. Is that different than perfection?
0: I get the idea that it's more like we have the ability to perform ourselves say the term again need to realize a state we all have a need to realize a state of perfectibility so we realize that out there somewhere we can perfect ourselves but why isn't it called
1: a state of perfection i don't know because to me perfectibility sounds like an trying to be an action yeah Like, a state of where we're constantly striving to be better. Well, I think that's
0: because we can't ever be perfect. I know.
1: It's it's hard for me to wrap my mind around anyone, like, reaching a state of being perfect. So I don't know if that's what it means. But that could just be my own bias. I think it means we're constantly
0: shooting for perfection, but we can't get there, and that's why it's not.
1: Maybe. Yeah.
0: And the only other one, then, is a need to achieve personal competence. So we all have that need to be the best we can be, basically.
1: Which I i agree with i I mean
0: i agree i you know a lot of this stuff i'm like yeah 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 i get that
1: which will i mean that goes back to self-actualization which i think you and i both hold very important in our both personal lives and professional lives as counselors Mm -hmm. but we'll talk about that and like maslow's the one that came up with that Mm -hmm. which we had to look up over the podcast just to make sure (laughs) but like that maslow is a disciple of it's true yeah if you've ever seen that pyramid with like self-actualization at the top and then like like physical needs are at the bottom like sleep and eating and stuff is at the bottom and then there's like different tiers of what you can achieve that's maslow's hierarchy of needs We'll eventually talk about that. But that sounds to me Unless like... Unless you're
0: looking at the food pyramid and then... <laughs> <I'm>...
1: <laughs> you're like, all I see is vegetables. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: That's a different pyramid.
1: <laughs> physical needs at the bottom. <laughs> on the bottom of the food pyramid is bread, which is my physical need. It, <laughs> so. Amen to that, sister. <laughs> so I think they might be the same pyramid if you overlay them on top of each other. I am totally there. Oh, that me. is. Because then the the top is sweets and that is self-actualization <laughs> is eating desserts. <laughs> We cracked it. We're not talking about Maslow right now. But to me, this sounds like self actualization. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like a prototype of self actualization. So, just a couple of the things that kind of go with that same idea
0: of like main theories that Adler had was he kind of coined the term, which I don't really know why he coined the term because the terms were out there, but life tasks. That we're all, again, it's innate that we have this drive for these life tasks.
1: People just like coining terms, I think. I know. Psychologists are like, I got to coin a term and they won't take me seriously. <laughs> Wait, you got to coin a term right now. Coin the term. Coin a term? Yeah. Any term? Yeah. It can't be one that someone's already coined. <laughs> <laughs> you got to give me some
0: time to think about it. I'll think about it, let you know, at the end of the uh, podcast. All right. Can I coin the term cast from our last <laughs> That's episode? That's just a word. <laughs> oh okay
1: that's just like you have word. to make
0: up a whole well that's what I'm saying because life tasks is not like they made that up It's
1: just smash together two words
0: yeah like, and then say it's a new word
1: giraffe skates yes
0: that's, that's, that's what <laughs> I'm coining co- what does that mean what's the definition of uh, giraffe when skates when you have
1: your head in the clouds but you're trying to go through life <laughs> you're giraffe skating
0: <laughs> write that down
1: <laughs> we haven't recorded I don't think I need to I think that's good <laughs> She, i thought she was I gonna think, make fun of me for a second but then she was like no. oh no
0: when we, get, when we write sense. our book that we're working uh, okay, on sure, put that sure. in our book somewhere
1: that's that's the forward
0: okay all right so he basically said there are three life tasks and these make perfect sense that we have this drive in us uh first of all to be social which mm-hmm. is that belongingness sure to have friends to have people in our lives to be social the second one is love which is a step beyond that which is like intimacy so oh, okay to have a deep relationship so these with are all related they're not like separate right well they're yeah they're linked together the third one is work which we do because we have to fit in a society but it's it, yeah and it's also satisfying like doing a satisfying and productive occupation or career is fulfilling, you know, showing our competence. Right. And it's linking us to society. It's like killing several
1: right. birds. I have, I, I really agree with that because I know a lot of my clients who are in jobs that they don't find satisfying. And mm-hmm. I believe it's because they're in jobs where they don't feel like they're effectively contributing to society. Mm-hmm. Because, like, if we're just in a job, and I'm sure a lot of people have had this. I've been in that experience, too, where I feel like I'm not making a meaningful contribution to the world. Where I'm just, like, biding my time until the work day ends. Mm -hmm. It feels bad. It feels like you're just wasting your life. And so I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people get this, like, unfulfilled feeling from that. Because they're not contributing to society in a meaningful way. So when Adler first started talking about the life tasks... He basically
0: had those three. Okay. But as Adlerian theory has kind of evolved through the years, they've added a fourth, which is, and the reason I'm talking about it is because I think it's cool, and it's about spirituality. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to like cite my source like I learned in school to do. <laughs>
1: We've never done that before. You're setting a dangerous uh, precedent here,
0: Mom. You've done it before. You always sound like you've done great research, so I'm trying to but sound But I never cite my sources. Well, okay. I could
1: have just pulled all this out of my butt.
0: <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, so, a study by Gilliland and James in 1998.
1: That sounds really familiar. Did they do something else? Probably. They were very
0: Adlerian, so Mm, I've read several. And this is a direct quote from their study. It is important to define a spiritual self in relation to the cosmos, God, and universal values, and how to relate these concepts to obtain a spiritual centeredness, such that the other life tasks all take on meaning. So it's all about the meaning thing, you know? Right.
1: So... But I think that's, and I think when we're talking about spirituality, we should clarify that doesn't necessarily mean religion. Right. I think everyone has a different spirituality. I mean, there are some people who are not religious, but have very great importance on meditation and that kind of thing. And that's spirituality. I mean, that's just kind of anything that's not like the physical world to me is spiritual. Mm -hmm anything beyond that is like in greater purpose and that kind of thing exactly you can believe in greater purpose without believing in god
0: but that's why it makes it it makes the other ones make sense if you believe in a greater purpose or you're shooting for that then the work and the love and the social all make more sense because there's a reason to do it otherwise it's like what's the point right exactly what is the point it's
1: that why are we here question that everyone struggles with at some point so that's the part that he
0: calls life tasks do you want me to talk about lifestyle real quickly, or you want me to wait?
1: Tell me about mistaken lifestyle. Do you okay. have that?
0: Yes, I do.
1: <laughs> Mom brought her computer and paper notes. I think she's book. just trying to. And my book. <laughs> I think she's trying to throw me off her track. Oh no! Which way am I looking? Which way am I looking? Which way are you going to make fun of me? Which way? Are you gonna-
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, now I'm freezing up. I don't know Sorry. what to do.
1: You have too many sources around I, you. That's right. I do. You just got to wing it like I do.
0: <laughs> because I'm I'm actually kind of missing
1: one page. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. <laughs>
0: I know it's in here, too, though. Here, come back to me. What? I'm not going to do it right now.
1: Oh, okay. Because I, 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 I'm quitting. I screw
0: this job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of working for the man. I don't see the greater purpose
1: in this <laughs> podcast.
0: I have to go think about my own life tasks and why the heck I'm doing them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So Adler basically felt like he could distinguish four primary types of style of, for lack of a better term, for lifestyle. But but three of them, he said, were mistaken styles. Like there's oh, basically four okay. lifestyles and three of them are mistaken styles. Gotcha. So like when we're not really, remember we go back to that idea that we're all programmed, we are innately have that in us that we want to be socially empathetic and mm-hmm. compassionate and respectful. We want to have that belongingness that means that we plug into other people in a good way but there are, are three other ways that people don't do that well so like one type is and i don't know if these are exact quotes or whatever from him but the way that that this particular source says one mistaken type is getting or or leaning types people who willingly and happily take others without giving anything in return
1: being a leaning type. <laughs> what the hell are you doing i thought she back. was
0: she's leaning back and forth Leaning. So we all know those kind of people. So people. they're the
1: ones who take the leaning? Exactly.
0: Take, they lean on people. Oh, they lean
1: on people. Le- they gotcha. lean on
0: people and then they take from them. Those, and they,
1: those energy vampires they, that exactly, you might know.
0: Exactly. So that's not a good way to be. That's one of the mistaken. <laughs>
1: Generally not good.
0: Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Mistaken. <laughs> don't
1: energy vampire your friends. Right.
0: And this personality type is correlated with a low activity level. That's because they're they're sucking the energy out of other people and letting them do all the work. Sure. Okay. So that's the first mistaken type. Second mistaken type is called avoiding types. For sure. And those despise failure and defeat, so they don't want to take. <laughs>
1: just not going to engage. Right. Nope. I just
0: because I, I might fail, so I'm just going to stay out of the game. They tend to have very few relationships socially. I was actually just
1: thinking that that's like, if we're talking, especially if we're talking about social engagement, I was just talking to a client who's having a really hard time and they were admitting to me like, I can tell I've been building up my walls again, Mm. but things are going really well for them. So it's like, ah, you're building them up because you're afraid that that's going to be taken away and you're building up those walls and distancing yourself from people so you have control over that instead. Mm. So I would classify them as an avoidant type. There you go. So that's the second mistaken. And the
0: third mistaken is ruling or dominant types Mm. who are on the perpetual quest for power. And they're willing to manipulate people or do what they have to, you know, step on people, do what they have to do to get that power.
1: So they're a high level of activity. Right. <laughs> high level. Of activity. But
0: their behavior is antisocial, basically. They, they're they not good for society. They right. don't connect in a positive, empathetic way. Right. So then that leaves, the, you know, those are the three mistaken. So then there's the fourth type, which is basically all arrows point to this as being, we should all try to do this. And this is the socially useful type. And they tend to be outgoing and social and active and these types strive to improve the world around them
1: it's so a it's, very mild name for that it's got like, like avoidant and like yeah was it dominant and it's like uh-huh. useful i'd, I'd like yeah, to just be useful, useful. Like, they put the bar very low I'm so people can strive for it useful. i'm useful in society thank you <laughs>
0: But yes, so those are what Adler referred to. Those were his personality types. Maybe I was, I was thinking. That, I was
1: sitting here thinking, like, are there things that that doesn't cover? Because that doesn't seem like very it's inclusive. It's not very broad, types, is it? No. Uh
0: huh. I don't know. But I know that as I read it, I thought about people who were oh, like you each were like diving people. Yeah, Which, yeah. Am Which am I? Which am I? Which am I? Oh, you're useful. Am I? You're very useful.
1: Not dominant.
0: No, because you don't manipulate people.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's true.
0: And you, I don't think you have a quest for power. I mean, you like power. Power for
1: but... my phone when I have a low battery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, you're my perfect daughter. You would have to be. Yeah, they should have a Stop. perfect category instead of just a I have to strive for,
1: for perfectionability. <laughs> Perfectibility. Perfectability. Perfectability.
0: Okay, I'm done talking. Talk about something.
1: Oh, okay. I'm going to talk about probably the thing that people will
0: recognize.
1: recognize the most, yes. The Adler inferiority complex or theory or whatever you want to call it. So this is, I think, the thing that's most hit on, like, a lot of this other stuff is not entirely new, but we really didn't cover it when we were talking about the theorists when we were in school. So the inferiority complex is what we mainly focus on when we talk about Adler as a theorist. So this starts from that fun fact that I mentioned that he worked near a circus, (laughs) and he came up with this theory called organ inferiority, and that's... I know. So it's the idea that people are born with certain organs that are more weak than other organs. So, like, some people are born with, like, a heart murmur, so their heart's weaker than others, And they're born with, like, you know, maybe, like, weaker legs or something. And and they're more likely to get sick in these organs because these organs are inferior to other organs. And that they have to develop different organs up more to compensate, which I will talk about in a second. But compensate as a concept plays Mm -hmm. in here. So this is kind of what we talk about when we talk about, like, when someone's blind and their sense of hearing amps up really mm-hmm, high mm-hmm. that's he would qualify that as an organ inferiority because your eyes are inferior to your other organs so you would use a different organ to, to make compensate. up for that weakness yep that makes sense right but this does this is just physical and like he came up with this when he was doing the physical Uh, medical practice so it does not like cause the thing that we now think of as an inferiority complex or anything like they're not entirely related as far as I can tell but it was kind of the beginnings of his inferiority theory is just the organ inferiority which is purely physical but that led into his other concepts of inferiority which so there's primary and secondary inferiority primary inferiority is something that everyone as a human experiences that is original and it's normal. And it's basically the feeling that children have, especially like toddlers, of being small and weak and dependent on adults to do things. And I don't know about you, but when I work with kids, I can really see this. I can really see that feeling of like frustration at not being in control of things and knowing that they have to, like they can't go out and see their friends unless their mom drives mm-hmm. them. Like mm-hmm. they really have this sense They understand how useless they are without the adults in their life. And I think it really kind of puts this complex on them immediately and Mm -hmm. kind of have to work through that when you're working with kids.
0: Well, and I know, I'm sure you do this too, that a lot of times when I work with kids, I say to them, I know it's really hard. Yeah, I know that, this is frustrating, that but... you have to basically do what your parents tell you to do yeah. because you're a kid. Yeah, this sucks. And you it's just okay. have to tell yourself, I'm not going to be a kid forever. Someday, this too shall pass. You know, someday... Someday,
1: I'll be able to eat a whole cake if I want. <laughs> exactly. And I'll be able to drive to the store to get it. It's fine. <laughs> and not brush my teeth after I, not, I eat No, whole you should cake. brush your teeth if you eat a whole cake. <laughs> It's not an adult thing. It's just a human thing. We're talking about society. Society wants you to brush your teeth after you eat a whole cake. But he also said that this kind of inferiority acts as an incentive to grow and develop. So kids who are really feeling that they are dependent on their parents to drive them around are maybe going to be more motivated to do really well in their driver's ed classes so they can get their driver's license. Mm -hmm. So we can use inferiority as a tool, but that's not always what happens it can develop into a complex from like physiological difficulties or handicaps or uh, bad parenting and this can be too much or too little like mm-hmm. in my reading it was basically like if your parent coddles you too much then you're going to be feeling in that inferiority or if they are too avoidant you're going to be feeling that inferiority so you got to strike a balance i guess that's
0: that kind of what we we're talking about before about the, the kind of the two sides of the coin yeah There's a lot of that in this. Yeah, there is a lot of that in this. Yeah. Okay.
1: So that's primary. And then secondary is adults feeling of insufficiency, often resulting from having too high of expectations, too high goals, and that usually those expectations are of perfection. So that's where I get confused about the perfectibility thing. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm reading about inferiority is that the idea of wanting to be perfect contributes to an inferiority complex. Because we logically know we can't be perfect. Right. So I'm not sure how those ideas play together. But it also,
0: as long as you're healthy about it, it pushes you forward.
1: Right, right. So it's that two-sided thing. Exactly. Well, and it's finding a way to use your weaknesses as strengths. Exactly. Not necessarily to build up other weaknesses or other strengths instead of your weaknesses. But mm-hmm. being able to kind of use your weakness as a strength. Mm-hmm. And really, as I was reading about this, it reminds me of imposter syndrome, which we've already talked about in episode five, if you want to go back and listen to that. But this is that... Do you, like, know all the episodes by heart? I'm impressed. N- no, I wrote it in my notes. Oh.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I- when we get to episode, like, 100, are you going to know what 82 was? You think we'll still be Not without looking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. But imposter syndrome, which is said we've already talked about, it's like feeling like you're not good enough to be doing what you're doing and feeling like other people are going to realize you're not good enough. And to me, those two, this, this idea is really linked to that Mm -hmm. or that idea. I mean, this idea preceded that. So I assume that is linked to this of like feeling like you're insufficient and feeling like you're inferior, but going beyond that and projecting that onto other people and saying they're going to figure out that I'm inferior. They're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. Right. So I think these ideas can play together really well. Or really badly, I suppose. Not well. (laughs) But our degree of basically distress that we feel from this secondary inferiority is directly related to how far we feel we are from the goal that we have. So obviously if our goal is perfection, we're going to have a high level of distress because we're not close to perfect. We can't be. Mm -hmm. But if our goal is just like... I'm going to going to turn in this paper. <laughs> I'm just going mm-hmm. to just going to do that. And then we feel like we can do that by the end of the day like great. We feel great. We feel like we are on track. So, if we're setting those really high expectations and those really high goals for ourselves and then we feel like we can't possibly be meeting those, that's when the complex comes in. That's when we start to develop maladaptive behaviors. That's when it gets bad instead of using it as a tool. And he also mentioned that the secondary feeling of inferiority could be related to the primary feeling of inferiority, where like, if that was kind of like, like I said, that if that came from some bigger challenges in life, that that stuff may be kind of haunting us and we haven't moved past it yet and we need to be processing those feelings. So if we had a physical deformity or if we had mm-hmm. something like, like he was really sick as a child. I was going to say
0: that's, that he probably had that exact feeling.
1: Right. And that's why that's where these like this context comes in. Mm-hmm. We're like, I feel like I understand the inferiority theory much better knowing about what Alfred went through as a kid about all his physical sicknesses and mm-hmm. all of his like he wanted to be this opera singer and then he became a doctor, which again is very socially useful, but it goes against what he wanted to do and what he was really good at. And mm-hmm. that's that's hard. So, I mean, I think I. I always like when we do these kind of episodes because I feel like I understand where these things come from a bit more and that helps me understand the actual theories a bit more and I feel like I really do understand kind of the sad history of the inferiority complex if mm-hmm. he really struggled from that. Mm-hmm. So I've used that term inferiority complex a few times and this is if the distress of the secondary inferiority... Oh my god. <laughs> inferiority. That's going to... There's too many... Well, you had said it so many times. Your mouth is getting tired. Furiority. 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 Gets to be... (laughs) (laughs) If the stress from that gets to be too much. So we develop a complex. And that is just when it becomes too much stress. When we start to develop some unhealthy mental attitudes And it becomes this lack of self-esteem. In one source, it said, an extreme expectation that one will fail in the tasks of life, which you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So those life tasks, that you are not going to be able to meet the expectations to be meeting those life tasks. Mm -hmm. And it can lead to either pessimistic resignation from assumed inability to overcome difficulties. So basically you're saying, there's no way I can possibly do this, so I'm not even going to try. Which I would, if we're going by the types, I would say avoidant right like if i can't do this i'm just not gonna do it right if i can't do it perfectly i'm not gonna do it which i think is a lot of reason why people procrastinate sometimes i agree i think a lot of procrastinators are like oh yeah i just don't want to do it like no i think a lot of procrastinators are perfectionists and so they say if i'm not going to be able to do it perfectly i'm just gonna wait until the very last minute to do it
0: Mm -hmm. i think that's insightful
1: and i i read that this is called undercompensation which i had never heard before i haven't either it's So, like, basically, like, not doing anything is undercompensating. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But it can also lead to overcompensation or just regular compensation. And I'll talk about that (laughs) in a second. Just regular old compensation. (laughs) Compensation is basically covering up weaknesses or frustrations or desires or feelings of inadequacy in one area by strengthening another area. Which reminds me of a defense mechanism. I actually looked up whether or not compensation was a defense mechanism. Is it not? I don't think so. It's sublimation.
0: Well, it's kind of like that. It's when you do something. No,
1: the other one. Your favorite one.
0: Reaction formation. Yeah. No, that's when you like you're opposed to something. Like you act really opposed to something because you really want to do it yourself. Like you pick Isn't it. That the,
1: overcompensating. Oh, if, I guess
0: you could twist it you, that way. If like you're opposed, you're we're tar- like homosexuality. Okay, so
1: you're drawn t- to be gay and so you pick it you feel that as a a failing of yourself okay so you're overcompensating by going to pick it
0: oh and that would be a reaction formation then Ooh. and freud would say that was my idea
1: get that atlas (laughs) shit out of here
0: He didn't think of that. I thought I of thought that. I thought of that first. He just put a different name I, on it. He just called it a
1: different thing.
0: <laughs> he just coined the There's a lot word. of that. We
1: were talking about that earlier. That there's a lot of that in psychology where we would be in classes and we would be learning about these different theorists and their different kind of uh, techniques and we would be like, hey, isn't, isn't that, that that other thing yeah. that just, it's labeled different? Mm-hmm. And they would exactly. be like, no, it's different. <laughs> It's like having the exact same
0: recipes for, like, meatloaf. And the only difference is, like, you put a little pepper in yours and they don't put pepper in there. It's
1: like that, uh, shows our difference. It's like Under Pressure and Ice Ice Baby. And when Vanilla Ice was like, he got, yeah, when he got asked, like, uh, did you just steal Under Pressure? He was like, no, there's a ch in it. It's like that makes it different. It's a different thing. That's a
0: perfect example.
1: <laughs> Good thinking, so, Anna. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. What uh, was I talking about? Uh what are we talking no, about? No, I just am gonna have those two songs stuck in my head. Oh, uh, oh, compensation. Mm-hmm. So compensation can be either conscious or unconscious. And I would say that things like what we just talked about, like the reaction formation would be unconscious, that we're not intentionally doing that, that we are doing it because we are trying so hard to push that down into our unconscious that we're doing other things. But we can be consciously trying to compensate for things. But I think that requires a really high level of self-awareness of our weaknesses, which I think a lot of people don't like to do. Right. I think a lot of people don't like to think about what they're weak in and they, they're just like, no, I'm really good at this. But you're, you're like, okay, but maybe that's because you're trying to fix that. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, this goes back to our whole self-awareness thing that we always talk about that this knowing if you're doing this requires a high level of self-awareness. But compensation can lead to overcompensation. And overcompensation is basically trying too hard to make up for something. And it's characterized by basically a superiority goal. So when we overcompensate, it's not like we just want to be good. We want to be better than other people. Right. We want to strive for power or dominance or a really high level of self-esteem. So that's kind of where that dominant Mm -hmm. type comes in. Exactly. It's and all coming together. All the pieces all, are coming all together. the pieces, like a big old puzzle. Are our puzzle cast. <sighs> <laughs> okay. This is interesting. I read that midlife crisis is an example of overcompensating. I've never connected that before. Huh. Like a midlife crisis when uh, someone is feeling like they have lost their youth. And they're going to overcompensate by going to buy a sports car or getting, mm. like, a younger partner or something like that. Like, they're going way above and beyond. No, that makes sense. So it's overcompensating for that feeling of aging, basically.
0: I used to have, know some kind of bad joke about overcompensating, and but I don't remember it. And I think it was dirty, so I can't <laughs> tell it anyway. It was something about Corvettes and penises.
1: That sounds right. Yeah,
0: but I don't remember it. Whenever
1: so. a car goes by and they have a really loud, <laughs> like, Rrr! i'll be like that person has a huge penis <laughs> <laughs> it's a that's and that's the the big overcompensating jokes right. when you see like a dude in a really big truck or something yeah. and you're yeah. like what are they compensating mm-hmm. for yeah that's become part of culture yeah it's part of the cultural osmosis yes but that's where a superiority complex comes in. So if we have that superiority goal, then part of our overcompensating is going to be taken to its logical conclusion where when we feel inadequate, we lash out and we try to make others feel more inadequate than us, basically. So we try to make ourselves feel better by making other people feel worse. And that's where a superiority complex comes in. Don't be that person. Okay. We don't like that person.
0: I won't. I won't.
1: That's bad. God. And so... I have in my notes that striving for perfection is the main driving force behind all of our behavior and experiences. I, I have perfection, not perfectibility. Then again, Maybe all of the sources kind of the were different thing, when so. I looked at it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe everything's just a typo in all of the Adler sources. <laughs> Poor
0: Adler. Poor Freud. Adler. Freud probably got in there and messed up all the sources.
1: <laughs> Freud this, will him. It's like, this will show him. This will show him up. but that's French. Damn it. <laughs> I tried. I committed tried and I tried. It, they all kind of sound, they like sound so the right, same. They the same. But right. he was like, I'm going to put it. So he's there. That's my bolt. I'm, I don't <laughs> I'm going to put it. So, so he's uh, like, they chop off their words. I don't know. I'm okay. going to put so he's. That's that's Pavlov. Pavlov did this. This is Freud. He went in, he changed the Wikipedia. He's like, he was born on the 17th. Ah, this is a great joke. No one will ever know this when he's hilarious. Birthday is. Anna, Anna Freud, come in here. <laughs> this is a hilarious joke. She's like, Dad, shut up.
0: <laughs> Dad, get over it. Dad, just it.
1: smoke a cigar and get over it. <laughs> okay. Ooh, can I talk about masculine protest? I know it wasn't in our notes, but it's interesting. Sounds like something you would like to explain. It's (laughs) something you would like to have me explain. (laughs) This is a really kind of forward-thinking idea that Adler had. So he basically saw that in society, boys were held in higher esteem than girls. But he didn't really believe that that meant that boys were superior. He attributed it to how society taught boys and girls differently and he said that both boys and girls have the capacity for protest which basically means assertiveness but masculine protest is fostered and uh in the feminine it's discouraged so he basically kind of looked at this as a it's not really a gender thing but we're treating the genders differently which i think is really forward thinking for way back then really. yeah and and he had kind of these over, like forward thinking ideas but then he was not great for LGBT. I don't know if you read any of that. He originally called homosexuality one of the failures of life. Ouch. Yeah, because he equated it to inferiority, like, with one's own gender. Which, oh, hmm. that doesn't really make sense, though. Because, like, gender and sexuality now, we know now, are different. I mean, those are they have right. totally different spectrums. They have all that. So it's it's like, oh, buddy, that's not really it. But I think he later seemed to change his view I read about this time when a woman was talking to him about a man who was living in sin with another man. <laughs> and uh, and Alfie goes, is he happy, would you say? And the woman goes, oh, yes. And he goes, well, why don't we leave him alone? <laughs> Aw, that's perfect. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> go bud <laughs> you go job, I was like that's a great example that, that of fits, changing shifting right that fits more
0: what i think of him yeah that he was more like yeah that. especially
1: with like we should all just love yeah. you know we should just Belong- be socially yeah. interested all hooked together in the yeah. circle of life yes okay, okay. Tell me about some interesting birth order family things. I will.
0: I will. One of the things that has kind of become culturalized is the birth order thing. Mm -hmm. That was an Adler thing that has now... I remember um, hearing
1: about that even before we learned about it. Yeah.
0: It's kind of become something that we talk about like in the media and and it's kind of taken almost out of context sometimes and taken too far. So before I even talk about it, I want to say that we've talked about... I don't know that we've actually said this directly, that basically... A part of the heart of what Adler believed was that even though we do have all these things that happen to us as little children and we have thoughts of what we want to do, even when we're like four or five years old, mm-hmm. that we do have, because it's individual, we do have that control of being creative and finding our own outcome. Like right. setting goals is huge in his theories. Right. Which I'm sure you'll maybe get to, that yeah. setting goals thing. So even though what I'm about to talk about Is from Adlerian theory about how we're kind of predisposed. To be and act and live a certain way, he firmly believed that we might have these things, but we can choose to overcome them or set new goals. It's just a way of understanding maybe why we have certain presets. You know, our, right. we, our brain like is that preset. Thing that we always
1: talk about the self awareness and the mm-hmm. feeling in control of yourself and all that stuff. So, again,
0: mm-hmm. this is just a rose by any other name. Exactly. So I'm going to talk about the, the birth order, but let me throw in first the word of family constellations mm-hmm. because this kind of comes out of that. That was one of his terms, family constellations, that's now kind of grown into a lot of other things. But I think of it like like the stars, like constellation yeah. and how the stars are, are all kind of hooked together. And when we look at a constellation, they're separate stars, but they look like whatever Virgo. Orion's Belt. Okay. That's a very good example.
1: (laughs) That's my favorite Uh, constellation. That's a good one. The Big Dipper. I can always find him.
0: (laughs) I can always find Big Dipper. My buddy
1: Orion.
0: So when you look at a constellation, you don't really think about all those separate stars. You look at it like a whole like the Big Dipper or mm-hmm. Orion's Belt. And that's kind of the family theory, that families are linked together in a lot, and there's a lot going on in families, and that we get our cores of our personality from that. So it includes things like, you know, what are the sexes of your siblings and how big is your family and the birth order, which I'll talk about in just a minute, and also
1: even your culture.
0: and, oh,
1: yeah. Which really makes sense why he was so systemic, exactly in his approach to like applying in schools like he wanted teachers which is kind of culture Mm -hmm. and and your parents so where you're born and your family constellation to be involved in that because he recognized i think very again very ahead of his time that you cannot just work on the individual without looking at the bigger picture
0: right i i always think adler was a social worker he was not a As much a counselor as he was. Yeah, he was a social worker. Okay, so let's talk about birth order. And these things you guys have probably heard about because, like I said, they're they're talked about in the media a lot. But I want to also add that (laughs) it goes back to that two sides of the coin thing because for almost every example that they give, they say, it could be this. Ooh, or it could be the total <laughs> opposite and be this. Counterpoint. And also, if you're listening and you're like, okay, I'm ready to know which one I am, you have to know even before you start to listen that there are a lot of things that might affect this. So when I say firstborn child, you might think automatically, oh, I'm a firstborn child because that's actually where you were born in the birth order. However... There's something called the psychological birth order, which changes, that's the other side of the coin. It changes <laughs> like everything. or. Because, exactly, because there could have been something that happened in your family that even though you were born first, you don't behave like a firstborn, or you don't have those behaviors. And it could be maybe a miscarriage before your birth. It could be that one of the siblings had an illness. It mm. could be, and this is a significant one, if there's more than three years between siblings. Oh, Sure. Sometimes birth order starts all over again, mm-hmm. which is what I was talking about for me with you, Anna, for myself. Oh, yeah. That that that. I wonder if maybe that has an effect. Because my older brother is five years older than me.
1: Which isn't that big of a cap. It's
0: not, except it's more than three. I guess. And I can remember as a child that it was kind of like he... I mean, he was my big brother, but I wasn't as connected to him. I wasn't connected to him the same way I was connected to my little brother that there was less than three years between. I don't know. So let's just talk about it. Sure. So so me and my
1: brother are four years apart. mm -hmm. So does that mean we operate as like, I think me and Gabriel are pretty close. Well,
0: that's the weird thing, though, because when I was looking at it for my own children, Mm -hmm. Anna and Gabriel, I don't see, it's like you each have, I don't see it like you were a pace setter for Gabriel, because that's one of the things. (laughs) I
1: I try Aspired to be like Gabe.
0: <laughs> I don't think he's a pace setter for so me. <laughs> maybe you were just far enough apart that. But maybe. you know,
1: again, well, you that's go true. Back like to, when when we were in high school, we weren't in high school at the same time ever. Like right. I graduated when he was graduating into high school, basically. Mm-hmm. So we never really had to deal with that. Like so, oh there's yeah. a lot of, and you know, you have to look at two like
0: divorce situations right. and thing. In some families, blended families. Oh my goodness, there's all kinds. I was of actually
1: going to ask about blended families. Yeah. I think you'll probably talk about that.
0: So let's just let's just look at the bare minimum, which is what Adler Gave us okay. He gave us the start, and it's evolved. What Adler gave us the, the minimum. bare, the bare minimum because you know, like all that Thanks bad Al. stuff that Freud said. No, no I, Alfie, I, I believe
1: in you, and I think you're a handsome young man. I, I was gonna say I like pretty much everything that Al says. So. I, I know we are Freud apologists, but I agree with more of Adler stuff by a country mile. Yes, than I agree with Freud's. exactly so. exactly, hear that, Alfie. Hear that
0: segment. <laughs> She's chosen her side. I have <laughs> picked my side. Mark, come the fight me, ghost of previous theorists. Come fight uh, me. Okay, so firstborn children. This is you, Anna Marie. Represent. I mean, we, you know, this is pretty obvious. They're prone to perfectionism, but they have a need for affirmation. They tend to be intellectual, conscientious, and they are usually dominant in social settings. However, see here's the other side of the coin, <laughs> or, or the total opposite, or no. the entire opposite, because it depends a lot on how they are dethroned, because they what are is dethroned. That me? Wait,
1: is this a Lion King situation, <laughs> Scar, <Scott, laughs> brother?
0: your little brother dethroned you when he was born oh that's what that means Mm. okay so it depends on how the parents and the extended family the family constellation handles the birth of the second child and and so on
1: okay Mm. so this is interesting to me because we have talked in previous episodes about how i even as a toddler was pretty independent Mm -hmm. do you think that would have made a difference with did i maybe not care as much about how i was dethroned did how you took my crown from me and gave it to my brother?
0: Well, I think, I mean, this is a lot of self-disclosure, but I think that you were, in your childhood, you were in a dysfunctional family in that your father and I did not have a very good marriage. Right. And so. But sort of game. Yeah, but that's a whole, we're just talking about your dethroning right now. Oh. I also think, though, <laughs> you were very excited. <laughs> this <sounds> dirty, somehow. <laughs> dethroning. You were very excited about having a, a little brother. Yeah you were very excited about it and we made a big deal about how you're gonna be a big yeah. sister and that's all yeah. part of the doing it in a good way so okay you did it right yeah well, i don't know about you that did it right i did the best i could so oldest children go through a lot and we all know this thing where we tell the oldest you know you have to set an example for your younger brother or and your older children a lot
1: are put into places of responsibility within the family of mm-hmm. okay make sure your little brother's fed you mm-hmm. didn't really mm-hmm. do this for me but i know i know for, I know <laughs> for your brother because i've not cooking (laughs) you're like Anna it's your responsibility to make the mac and cheese tonight Uh, but no I I know a lot of my clients that I've had like as kids that I see that are like way more mature than they should be have put mm -hmm. into been put into these places of familiar responsibility for taking care of their younger siblings right and that's not fair (laughs) I mean it's not fair
0: no it's one of those not fair moments of being a kid okay I'm gonna go for just pause for a second and say this no, maybe I should say that for the end. I'll say that for the end. Okay. But I will say this: we'll research start. has shown that firstborn children tend to show a higher intelligence level than their younger siblings, like IQ wise. Gabe's way smarter. Than um, me. <laughs> Gabe, if you're listening to this, you're so much smarter. Than me. <laughs> I I think that you're pretty similar in your intelligence levels. But the oldest child usually does become a leader as such and kind of strives to be a leader, not only in the family, but also in social situations. So here's the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is if a firstborn has been dethroned in such a way that was traumatic, whatever that might be, they can build a real rebellious streak. But they will always strive to try to be perfect. Even if they're in a rebellious streak, they will strive like they look like they're being rebellious but actually they're still trying to get their parents approval, approval. so
1: it's interesting mm-hmm.
0: so let me tell you about the second child and that's like so there's gonna middle? be more not middle yet just second and very oh. briefly that the second child is someone who and the way he words it is they always have a pacemaker that means the older child it's, <laughs> it's always kind of like a, a physical yeah. one they <laughs> had to put born, it in right when they're born
1: <laughs> so this is interesting to me because i think Part of this is when he wrote it, families were bigger. Exactly. Like, because we're in our, in my family, yep. my brother is a second child and the youngest child. Right. So it's like, which one does he right. fall into exactly. under this theory?
0: Right. But generally speaking, the second child will grow up to be more competitive because they're always trying to do as well as the oldest, First you know, child, trying to yeah. keep up with it. And they are actually usually have a rebellious streak in them. Now, the middle children, and in it, in like for me, I was a second born, but I was also a middle child. If you right. just look at the actual birth. Right. So, middle children, they kind of tend to, and a lot of middle kids say this, they're like the lost child. Um, oh. They kind of struggle to figure out where their place is in the family because they're not an oldest, they're not a youngest. So, they're kinda like, what am I? Right. Um, however, they're also very eager for their parents' praise. And that's probably because they kind of fall in between the cracks sometimes. And so they they do tend to sometimes really try really hard to accomplish a lot because they're trying to get their parents' approval. But they're also usually more flexible and diplomatic. They're the peacemakers. We always hear that about middle children.
1: Wait, so is this second or middle?
0: This is middle okay middle child
1: so second is just competitive That was kind of yeah that's pretty thing. much it
0: second is that they always know that the, somebody else is setting the pace they got to keep up so they're always fighting to keep that's up that's really the interesting
1: because adler was a second child according to a source <laughs> one of the so those in more sources he was the second child right but i also read that he was always trying to outdo his older brother Aha! Uh-huh.
0: so that's probably that's where probably that where it came theory from. came from
1: Okay, so then, and remember that, well,
0: I'll go back to that. So youngest.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, you're giving us oh, so many lead-ups. I just, just want to tell you stuff. stuff.
0: I know. So, so youngest children is what we've always heard about the youngest child. They're often dependent. The baby. Yeah, they're the baby of the family. They're dependent and selfish because everybody's taking care of them, so that's what they're used to. So they expect that. However, this child may also possess. <laughs> or. I know. <laughs> positive <laughs> traits of confidence. This I thought was interesting. Ability to have fun and comfort
1: at entertaining others. That's Gabriel. Isn't that funny? That's Gaby. Yeah. Gabe, I don't think you're a spoiled baby, by mm. the way. Like you were saying, I don't really, like, as you were saying that, I'm like, oh, it's not good. And as you were saying the oldest, I was like, oh, it's not really me. So There's just heart. a little,
0: little bit here and there. But usually, yeah. youngest children, yeah, they kind of are used to getting It's kind of like way. a horoscope where you read it and you can pick out mm. one thing where it's you like, you can oh, make it work. Be me. Yeah. <laughs> then he also puts a note about only children. Only children, obviously, they don't have to share their parents' attention. And so they have a hard time Mm -hmm. uh, when they go to school because they're not used to having to just be in a group of people and doing what the teacher says. They expect full attention. So sometimes they're the most difficult students, those Mm -hmm. of you who are teachers, and deal with some only children. You might recognize that. On a positive note, though, only children are usually pretty mature in their social communication skills. Really? You would think it would be the opposite. But they're used to being around adults oh so they talk like grown-ups okay they want to get their way and they have that immature emotional side but they come across as being more grown up because they're used to communicating with adults Hmm. so that kind of makes sense he says just a little bit about twins he says that the one literally the one that's born first is considered the older one so there's a whole dynamic that goes on between why you asked
1: me (laughs) I have a a niece and nephew who are twins, Uh and she asked me at lunch, like, hey, which one's the older one? (laughs) Yeah. I said, I "I don't remember. I was thinking of this. And the
0: older one often becomes kind of like the oldest, even if they're in the middle of a birth order, of the two children, the older of the twins. Wait, like the oldest
1: child archetype?
0: Yes. Interesting. They become the leader and the one who's, you know... Do you think
1: that's like because they're so a microcosm? I think that's
0: exactly it.
1: Like they're kind of off in their Mm -hmm. own world because they are so close? Mm -hmm.
0: And so something else that I just found interesting that goes kind of along with both the the family constellation and also the birth order thing is um, there was a couple notes about if you have a family where you have only one boy... And then you have multiple girl siblings. So at least two or more girl siblings and one boy. That the boy will be either here's the two sides of the coin.
1: <laughs> either this or either, the
0: opposite. Exactly. Either he will be somewhat effeminate because he's grown up around sisters, which makes perfect sense.
1: I've known a lot of guys like that I was who were say, like I grew up in a house with estrogen or whatever. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I've known a couple of men who are rather effeminate who sure. grew up with sisters. The other side of the coin is that they will overcompensate and show their masculinity like in kind of ridiculous ways sometimes because well, it's, it's trying super to prove, miraculous. yeah, I'm uh, the man. And for the women, for the girls, if a girl has multiple boy siblings, and I have two brothers, there's two sides of the coin. Either she will be very feminine because she's proving she is the girl and she will embrace that and be the princess. That's
1: my niece. Olivia. Your niece. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> (laughs) Because I have two nephews and a niece, Uh and the niece and one of the nephews, they're twins. Uh But she is very much like, she's the princess. I like that. Okay.
0: (laughs) The other side of the coin is that she will be what I call a tomboy. And I kind of think that's what happened with me. I became more, you know, play army with the guys and
1: stuff. Um, If now is where we're deciding to go into this theory is correct. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whereas before we've been like, this is a load of bull hockey. <laughs> uh, oh, ooh, I maybe mean, that's what happened to me. Because I was a real Tombo when I was a kid. But and I you up, had your, I had my two older cousins, cousins yeah. who were closer to me. You age. had so you had
0: three boys around you.
1: They weren't siblings, but they were in my family constellation, exactly. and they lived really
0: close to us. And that's a good point. Family constellation does not have to be siblings and parents, which is where the blended families fall in.
1: <sighs> yeah, it's that all can be of that. Such can, a hard line. Yeah, to walk. it can get
0: very complicated. I wanted to throw in one more because I kind of take it personally that a girl who grows up with boy siblings may tend to work very hard to please her father. And that is really true. So throwing out for me, maybe not for any of you. That's for me, but I have different things with my dad. (laughs)
1: Mom's having a moment (laughs) of self-realization. Sometimes we gotta do that. This is what our podcast is about, Mommy. It's about
0: like self-awareness and realization. So the last thing that I would like to say about all of that is that basically like the two sides of the coin there has never been and in every source I looked at there's never been real strong research to support either any way other. exactly <laughs> and there's always these confounding things yeah. in the research that they do like well yeah but what if they have this in their family or what right. if this happens so basically speaking all of that is kind of cool and it's cool if you look at it and you go
1: yeah I'm a middle child and that's me yeah if it totally mm-hmm. if you totally connect with it that's great right. you can own it but there are mitigating factors right. and, and maybe you have a more nuclear family than other people have or maybe you are from bigger family and so you're able to kind of connect older second middle you know kind of going on down but maybe like if you're in my family it's me and my younger brother where i got step siblings later in my life but that was when we were already developed and i don't right. think that really like, like once we you're were out too of the, old to be you weren't kind of in, the in the same a, house yeah and that's, that's true significant you had to yeah. kind of
0: be in the same house
1: yeah so i don't think that really i mean they were in my family constellation but they didn't contribute to my development so i wouldn't right. really consider so there's so many factors in all of this when we talk about it there's just so many things to think about like there's a lot of mitigating factors but
0: all of this about the family ties back to Adler's theory about our longing to belong yeah. Because our family constellation is, is where our we belong main belongingness.
1: Belong- <laughs> belongingness. And if we feel like we don't belong in our family, that mm, that comes a with a lot issue. of inferiority about belonging in right. society. Exactly.
0: Okay, I'm done with that. That was a lot. That was a lot.
1: That is something, the social interest thing, maybe hopping back a little bit, but I think it goes with family too. That's something I have to go over with my clients a lot that I believe that's that's evolutionary that we as humans evolved to be social creatures i I often say that because people i I talk a lot with them about like being introverted versus going out every once in a while and how much of that is self-care and how much of it is avoidance Mm. and and so i kind of have to have the talk that is sometimes hard to swallow to some people about like it's fine to kind of take your own self-care because that's my self-care my self-care is like i don't want to go anywhere i just want to be at home with like my husband and my cats and i don't want to talk to anybody with pajama pants i'm gonna turn my phone off and leave it in another room and i don't want to talk to anybody Mm -hmm. it's that's my self-care but even if that is your self-care you need to do that social stuff every once in a while because that social part is so built into our dna right that's how no person is an island no and like exactly like we have to be making those social connections because that's how we form societies and Mm -hmm. that's how we made our culture and that's how like you said that that is one of the parts of this theory that i agree with that's kind of how we find our meaning is when we kind of find our place in the world at large Mm -hmm. and that's how we decide what we want to do and how we're gonna find the most meaning in what we're doing with our lives and for some people that is things that other people may not view as very useful you know it's i mean like i could never imagine being like a cpa like, like an accountant or whatever mm-hmm. but that serves a very useful function in society Absolutely. thank you god <laughs> thank things. you well, if I you're don't an accountant and you're listening to this <laughs> god you are valued <laughs> you are we love you you are valid we love you <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah like i think that it doesn't necessarily matter like what one person views as valuable for another person because different people are going to view different things as socially valuable that's right uh, should I talk about Adlerian therapy for like a second, like not very long? Yeah, it's for really like a second. Yeah, it's it's very like you said before. It's uh, it's very goal oriented. It's very short term. But basically, this is exploring a person's behavior through a lens of how they sense that they fit in with the community and with society, and how they fit in with others and maybe their family. I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, that is a huge part. We cannot separate ourselves from how we grew up and how we saw ourselves fitting in a family. Mm-hmm. So if we saw that as maladaptive, then we're going to see our view in society as maladaptive. Mm-hmm. So we have to kind of look at that. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty present-oriented therapist. Like, I, I try not to go too much into the past, but I'm finding more often that, like, you can't escape doing that. Right. Because it's relevant now right so it's like okay if it's affecting you now we need to go into it and so often people have stuff that's buried that they didn't think was that unhealthy when they were going through it as kids but now it's like yeah that's not good and now it's making me relate to other people badly and there's just
0: something i mean that's twofold one is letting go of that like digging it out so you can yes. let go of it. Opening and the can of worms and going right. through the so can you of worms. So go of it. But the other part of it too is to kind of be able to do that thing that we've talked about that there's comfort in kind of being able to categorize yourself or yeah. label yourself. So you look at it and you go, oh, well, that's why I do that. And, and then just go, okay, yeah, well, that's exactly. Do.
1: I think I I do that to my clients because I value that as a person. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to what we talked about before that if you're a therapist and you don't mesh well, then find a different therapist. but yes. but the people that I mesh the best with also value this as important in knowing why you do things mm-hmm. being able to explain the reasons. I mean, I've had several times where we've kind of been processing through things that have happened in their life and we hit on something and they go, "Oh, that's why I do yeah. this." This. yeah and then it's kind of an eye-opener and once they understand themselves better they're able to control that better mm-hmm. so so like we talk about with this family constellation birth order and the inferiority and all the stuff that we talk about if you're listening to this and you're like this is dumb this does not resonate with me at all that's fine it's totally cool. Like listen to some of our other episodes. Maybe yeah. some of that'll resonate. <laughs> and if it does, great. Maybe you understand yourself a little better. And that's that's
0: what we want. Because one of the things that we're doing in our life journey is finding the tools to be the most effective, which is one of his things that he mm-hmm. says. To be the best we can be, to be our most competent. The best we be. a man can get. <laughs> so when or we a find, <laughs> so when we find these things that help us to cope with life and to deal with things, and it makes us the best we can be, then we're we're doing
1: all good. Right. And that's really good. I think this is why it's called individual psychology, because a lot of Adlerian therapy is developing your individual personality, but also focusing on how all humans are interconnected. So this is where that like being able to differentiate yourself from other people comes into play, which can be really hard. Like I, I know that's hard with adolescents, especially like mm. when you're in high school and you're trying to fit in and you kind of Go so far into fitting in, overcompensating, I guess, you could be right. a word for it, that you lose yourself. But a big part of Adlerian therapy is, in the application of Adlerian theory, I guess I could call it, is just finding your own self and how you, as who you are, fits in with society at large and your community and how you as yourself can contribute to society. That's cool when I talk to little
0: kids sometimes and this is kind of like a spiritual thing that I say to them you know we're all like different puzzle pieces yeah. we're all completely different but if we're not in the puzzle then the puzzle isn't complete so we have to be ourselves, right to fit our own spot so
1: I like that mm-hmm. you're a beautiful puzzle piece Anna you Marie. are a beautiful puzzle piece <laughs> I would say you're an edge piece that's how important you are <laughs>
0: Am I a corner piece or yes, an edge? A I'm an corner. actual corner piece. You're a corner piece. Wow, for your life, I probably am. <laughs> you are, and you're one for mine too. You are. Yeah, mutual admiration society right here. Yes,
1: <laughs> everything's a society now. <laughs> everything's the Friday society. That's what we are. We are. All right. That's all I have. I don't know if you mm-hmm. have anything else. No, we're to add. good. We're good. All right. Do you want to thank the people for listening?
0: I always want to thank the people <laughs> for listening because… And you always uh, do it so well. <laughs> we do appreciate you taking time to share with us on our podcast. It's lovely. I get so excited when I see your reactions. And I'm not yeah. very good with technology. You guys know that, right? So, But, but she's
1: very good at going on Facebook and yeah. like posting posts. So if you see like a promotion, if that's how you found us, that was probably mom. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: I love your little smiley faces and your happy, your laughy faces. Those are my favorite. Right, so. Yes. Give um, us all the
1: laughy faces. Yes, we yeah, love those. We love
0: those. So thank you so much for listening.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the social media, all by the name Freudian Sips Pod, as well as our site, FreudianSipsPod.com. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us at FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com or message us on Facebook, message us on Twitter, any of that. We are also on Patreon if you want to support the show, if you want to send us some money. We are Freudian Sips Pod. <laughs> on there as well and please remember to leave us a nice rating and review wherever you can do that um if you have time to even if you don't listen to us on like itunes or whatever if you have time to go do that on itunes we would so appreciate that we just love like mom said we love hearing your feedback we love just seeing if you guys are having as much fun as we're having when we're recording this so wherever you're listening please do that if you can and our theme music is sweeter vermouth by kevin mccloud it sounds like this